Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. I'm calling this series of talks Rethinking the Satipatthana. My intention is to provide a comprehensive discussion of the Satipatthana, but to revisit some aspects of the Satipatthana which seem to be commonly misunderstood or around which there is little consensus in the way that they are currently taught. My intention has been to present them anew and in one place. The main aspects I want to draw out are three. One, the toolbox factors. What are they precisely and how do they interact, including the role of samadhi in accomplishing insight? and including understanding of what parts actually belong to mindfulness. Two, internal analysis, the meaning of the Satipatthana refrain at the heart of the Satipatthana. And three, the overall function of the Satipatthana in internalizing right view. Much of my focus in the last talks has been on internal analysis, point two, And I thought I would devote this week's talk to looking at that aspect from a different perspective so that listeners can fully appreciate the importance of internal analysis and producing insight. Recall that in the first phase of internal analysis, we break down our presumptions. So far, we've been breaking down our presumption of a substantial body. In this way, he provides contemplating the body in the body internally, or he abides contemplating the body in the body externally, or he abides contemplating the body in the body both internally and externally. Let me begin with a simile of my own. Suppose we experience a UFO. Sure enough, we see lights moving in the sky, say, in a bizarre pattern. Thereupon, we might seek to contemplate the UFO in terms of, what do I know? For instance, the UFO must be of extraterrestrial origin, because the technology to produce what I have observed is unknown on Earth. But from what planet did it come? How did it get here? What are the intentions of these extraterrestrials? I saw it, but did it see me? Do I need to hide so that I don't get gulp probed? Or is there a way I can cash in on my discovery? Simply recognizing that I have made a presumption about the existence of an alien craft counts as contemplating the UFO externally. Running with that presumption is external proliferation or speculation, and that counts in Buddhism as being distracted. 
Alternatively, we might choose to contemplate the UFO in terms of how do I know it? Am I hallucinating? Did I pop one too many pills? Not get enough sleep? Or maybe I'm dreaming. Is a twiddlebug larva creeping across my glasses? Can weather or optical effects explain what I'm seeing? This counts as contemplating the UFO internally. Philosophically, we would say that the orientation of internal analysis is epistemic. How do we know what we know rather than ontological? What do we know? The how alternative is far more skeptical and cautious than the other alternative, for it does not simply take what appears to exist out there at face value. In other words, it refuses to presume. The more skeptical how-do-I-know alternative is available, even if we're more or less convinced of the presence of extraterrestrials and is a quite advisable precaution, for no one wants to be labeled as a kook. Remember, to experience something as real is not the same as experiencing a real thing. Unfortunately, Satipatthana practitioners are surrounded by kooks. People presume the most outlandish things, such as selves, bodies, and that money buys happiness. The Buddha asks us effectively to be this skeptical and cautious as we navigate the world, to treat all things that appear to exist out there the same way the more cautious among us would treat the UFO. Contemplating how do we know is internal analysis. Internal analysis cannot prove that the presumption of a USO is wrong. Even if it explains our observations, there still might happen to be a UFO out there. But it can demonstrate that the evidence is weak, that we should not jump to conclusions about the situation prematurely. If internal analysis undermines our conviction in the presumption, it has done its job. This counts as contemplating the UFO both internally and externally. In a wonderful simile, the Buddha likens cognizance to magic in that it conjures up an experienced reality, often outrageously, by sleight of hand and illusion, but a reality which the wise are able to see through if they look carefully. Cognizance here is vijnana, the third factor of dependent co-arising in the fifth of the aggregates. I avoid translating this as consciousness. Cognizance is more specifically the mind's apprehension of what is going on in a situation, and therefore cognizance is easily subject to presumption. Here is what the Buddha says about cognizance. Now, suppose that a magician or a magician's apprentice were to display a magic trick at a major intersection, and a man with good eyesight were to see it, observe it, and appropriately examine it. 
to him seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance could there be in a magic trick? In the same way, a monk sees, observes, and appropriately examines any cognizance that is past, future, or present, inner or outer, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near. To him, seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in cognizance? The man with good eyesight is a skeptic. The Satipatthana practitioner is likewise a skeptic. The Buddha was relentlessly skeptical. It's important to understand this. Internal analysis turns us inward and focuses on the how rather than the what. Our aim, according to Buddhist scholar Elizabeth Hamilton, is to acquire insight into the very nature of cognition, into how our experience operates, which she goes on to equate with knowledge and vision of things how they are, which famously brings us oh so close to awakening. This is the fundamental purpose of the Satipatthana. In the process, insight, wisdom, seeing things as they really are, break up our fixed notions of reality and allow us to experience otherwise. As we contemplate things in this way, we discover that our skepticism and caution are actually well-placed. We find the world to be much more insubstantial than we had thought and come to appreciate the extent to which what we take to be reality seems to be cognitively constructed. So far, what we've called evidence has not revealed much about the very nature of cognition. Essentially, we have directed attention to some aspect of experience that we readily connect with the body, the breath, the posture, the body parts, and realize that an object body does not even occur to us. We are perfectly happy just sitting there internally with the breath or with the elements themselves, that when we are asked to contemplate the body externally, we have difficulty locating it. The body seems like an abstraction imposed by the mind as an unwarranted inference. Such inferences may be subtle and hard to tease apart, sometimes based in a host of background assumptions, many of which may be particular to a given culture, as in the case with breath. Such inferences are the realm of formation, sankharas, conceptual choices, literally putting things together. In this case, putting sources of evidence together to produce the presumptions that we take so seriously to our detriment. We now have an idea of the logic of the body contemplations. Each exercise presents an alternative assemblage of internal evidence for the presumption of the body ranging over the most 
conceivable arguments for the body, the breath, postures, actions, parts, or constituents, and finally stages of decomposition. The exercise is in each case a kind of thought experiment that reveals the tenuousness of the presumption based on the evidence under consideration. We'll find that the corpse exercises are particularly damning. Nonetheless, we have to wait for the contemplation of phenomena to begin to tease apart the cognitive processes responsible for our presuppositions. This occurs in the contemplation of the aggregates and in the contemplation of the sixfold sense sphere. More broadly, it should be noted that the twelve links of dependent co-arising are neatly divided, with the first six links providing the theoretical basis for internal analysis, and the remaining links are the theoretical basis for external analysis, that is, for understanding the unfortunate results of running with our presumptions, which begins after contact independent co-arising. The next phase in internal analysis has to do with impermanence, or else he abides contemplating in the body its nature of arising, or he abides contemplating in the body its nature of vanishing, or he abides contemplating in the body its nature of both arising and vanishing. One of the most problematic consequences of presuming that something exists is that it comes with a sense of relative permanence or reliability. The presumption of permanence or reliability is a primary source of suffering. It causes endless problems. Yet, as long as we presume permanent things, there will be permanent things in our world. We cannot prove there is no eternal self. This is why undermining presumptions in the first phase gives us insight into impermanence in the second phase. As we contemplate the breath, and therefore the body internally, we discover something insubstantial, a constant arising and vanishing, change with nothing permanent and fixed. Now, if our evidence for the body is insubstantial and relatively fixed, the presumption that the body is substantial and fixed is unwarranted. The body arises and vanishes with the evidence, with the breath. Through the contemplation of the breath along with the other body exercises, it becomes difficult to visualize a permanent body. I should note that this is not the only way to contemplate impermanence. There is a form of external analysis that can also be applied, which I'll get to in a moment. The third stage of internal analysis is to empty our concepts of presumption, or else mindfulness that there is a body is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. Our concepts are not the problem as long as we recognize their insubstantiality. It's not that there is nothing there at all, 
only that the body is not what we think it is. The concept of a body serves as a useful marker that can be useful in sorting out the world. The concept of the body is useful to get across the street without getting run over, or to provide instructions in the Satipatthana. But don't get caught in the presumptions that concepts conventionally bring with them. Finally, the fourth phase of internal analysis is to realize the consequences of internal analysis for how we live in the world. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu abides, contemplating the body in the body. We can practice renunciation in many ways, particularly through ethical conduct. But underlying our cravings and attachments in the first place is the presumption of a substantial self in relation to other substantial objects. Internal analysis gets at the root cause of the human condition and thereby uproots the basis of running with our presumptions. I should note that there is such thing as external analysis in the Dharma, though it does not seem to be a method of the Satipatthana. External analysis would begin with accepting presumptions as premises, then demonstrating that they lead to inconsistencies, or, more importantly, that they lead to suffering, akin to proof by reductio ad absurdum. This alone gives us an incentive to let go of our presumptions. There are many observable inconsistencies in the outer world that reveal themselves as we compare alternative sources of knowledge. I need hardly mention the most obvious examples, mirages, hallucinations, optical illusions, magicians' sleights of hands, which reveal themselves as illusory when they become inconsistent with other conditions present or unfolding within the outer world. More pervasively, the outer world appears consistently more permanent than natural reality could possibly be given other conditions. We tend to presume that our car will last indefinitely pristine in appearance and function, or that our spouse and we will live happily ever after, forever young and indestructible, and we feel, crave, and appropriate with such presumptions in mind, but then later faced with rust, dents, and breakdowns with old age, sickness, death, and wrinkles, we invariably suffer because we foolishly expected otherwise. And then we go and do the same thing all over again. It's sobering but important to realize that everything and everyone we cherish will be lost to us one by one until the ones that remain lose us. The world is slipping by like sand through our fingers. As a result, our experiential world is littered with the shards of broken promises. We have been duped, 
because we presume that enduring substantial objects exist in nature. Our immediate experience of the outer world simply does not keep pace with the unfolding of what plays out over time. In short, we can learn from the consequences of our presumption without understanding how it is we presume. This would be a form of external analysis. Next week, we'll take up the charnel ground contemplations.